Thank you, Pastor John and worship team and tech team and everybody who's making this possible. And we welcome you, our church family, to our online service today. And as has already been mentioned, if you're a guest here with us, we're glad you're joining us today as well. All of us, believe it or not, have a personal theology, a set of beliefs about God that form kind of the, the foundation for us about what we believe about him, how we practice our religion, how we view our world. And I think that the average person feels pretty confident in that theology, not, not in a sense that we think we could write a book about it or anything like that. I mean that we have confidence in that theology, in those beliefs. We believe that our beliefs, our understanding of God is strong enough to carry us through life. Well, there's, there's one sure way to tell whether or not our confidence in those beliefs is misplaced or not. Bring a trial, calamity, suffering your way, and then we'll know. Because those things have a way of being able to expose weaknesses in our framework for understanding God, unlike anything else. Oftentimes, we tell ourselves in the midst of suffering that our belief about God is sound and it will be able to carry us through and we even give voice concerning those beliefs to others who ask us about how we're doing and things are okay as we speak those beliefs, I've found, provided that nobody asks us any questions, any follow-up questions about those beliefs at all. Several years ago, Julie and I attended a, a tragic funeral. I mean, unbelievably tragic. I don't, I don't need to go into the details. Just, just know that it was terribly sad. But the people who were mourning that day were Jesus followers. And I mean they were and are sincere, committed followers of Jesus Christ. So those of us gathered there that day for that tragic funeral didn't grieve as those who have no hope. God was with us. He was there. He was comforting. Of this, I have no doubt. But in the midst of that service, someone said this about the tragedy that brought the funeral about. They said, this wasn't God's will. And everyone, everyone said amen. But I leaned over and whispered to Julie, then what's my alternative? I mean, I get what the person was trying to communicate, at least in part. They were trying to communicate that God had not personally delivered the blow of evil that had befallen this family. But I also know the theological convictions of the church to which these people belonged, and I know that they do not have a framework for thinking about God alongside the experience of suffering. So there was a real sense in which they were saying, God did not mean for this to happen. To which I say again, then what's my alternative? And a follow-up question, is that alternative all that helpful? To say that God did not mean for something to happen, to say that something was not God's will can only mean a handful of things. It either means some things fall outside of God's control, and then how does that help me? 
Or it means that there are things outside of the ability of God to know are coming. But how does that help me? Or it means that God is completely random and arbitrary in choosing what he stops and what he allows. And how does God playing rock, paper, scissors with my life help me at all? None of these things will do. In fact, concluding that something was not God's will can very easily lead us to ask, if we think about it at all, God, do I even know you at all? Where are you? And if you're around, what good are you? And then suddenly, our faith collapses. Where is God in this pandemic? Is it his will? Is it not? Answers right now being given across our church family vary. Some will say it is his will. But does that make God the cause of it? I mean, if, if it does, then we have a problem in James 1.17, which teaches us that everything with God as its source is good. So how can a pandemic be his will? No, some will say, well, it's, it's God's will for the world as a judgment against sin. And we feel very self-righteous in saying that. Fine. But what if you get it? What if, what if someone you love gets it? What if you lose your job because of it? Is God now judging, judging you and your sin? And I thought that because we were followers of Jesus, judgment has passed over us. So are you now then just random collateral damage in a God on a killing spree? Then some will say, well, clearly... Clearly, this is not God's will. And then we're right back where we started. Is God impotent? Is he feckless? You see what I mean? If your belief in God can't wrestle with the problem of suffering and trial and calamity and prevail, then your faith isn't ready to go to war against a pandemic or whatever else there is out there that you may face in your life. We desperately need help to go past the surface of thoughts about God, to go past sound bites about God, and get to the heart of who He is so we know how to correctly walk with Him through all of this. And Job, the book of Job in the Old Testament, is going to help us do that. Why don't you find that in your copy of God's Word, the Old Testament book of Job? We've decided it prudent to hit a pause button right now on our journey through the letters of John. We will pick that back up. But for the next several weeks, we are going to be reflecting on this, this ancient book, perhaps predating the time of Moses and the writing of Genesis, which would make this book the oldest book in the Bible. And it begins with this introduction. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 1 of Job 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 300 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, which I say, duh, if you've got that many animals, there's a lot of cleaning up to do. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. 
His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He'd rise up early in the morning, offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. I mean, it sounds in many ways that Job was your typical Johnson County resident. He was wealthy. He was successful, had an awesome family. But the thing that stands out the most to him in this brief introduction of his life has nothing to do with what he owns or his successes or his family. What stands out to him, what's revisited twice, is that he is committed to God. Job is a righteous man. And that does not go unnoticed. Look at verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, meaning angels, the spirits, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord, and he said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Of course he had. That there is none like him on the earth, and blameless, and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He'll curse you to your face. And typical suburban Christianity is not prepared for what God says next. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And God turned Satan loose to rain gut-punching calamity down on this good, decent, righteous man. And Satan wastes absolutely no time in getting around to it. Verses 13 through 19 reveal in rapid-fire succession how Job lost all of his servants, how he lost all of his livestock, his possessions, and his children. His children. A man with everything is suddenly reduced to material poverty, and he's rendered relationally destitute. But the core of the man, who he was, remains unchanged. He's anguished. He doesn't deny that. Heartbroken, to be sure. He gives voice to it all. But then in verse 21, he says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. I came into this world with nothing. I'll leave this world with nothing. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan has been proven wrong. He has taken everything from Job, and yet still Job worshipped and served God. Job remains a righteous man, and it doesn't go unnoticed. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and 
Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Of course he had, that there is none like him on the earth, the blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast, God says, to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he'll give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And again, suburban Christianity is not prepared for the answer that God gives. He says in verse 6, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Having turned Satan loose on everything that Job counts as precious in his life, he now lets Satan loose to afflict his body just short of death. Keep reading in verse 7. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. It's not clear the disease that was unleashed on Job. Shingles, perhaps those who have experienced shingles can attest to how painful it is. Some have speculated leprosy, some have speculated melanoma. Whatever it was, Job is in clear and obvious misery and this is heaped upon the emotional misery that he was already in. And yet, he still does not yield his faith, even though pushed to do so by the one closest to him. Look at verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Pay very close attention to Job's wife. She is a reflection of where faulty and shallow understandings of God can leave us in a very practical, real way. She wasn't physically afflicted. Uh, she, she, She had, however, been left destitute. She had lost her children, and so she was in emotional anguish. And now it seemed to her as if she was losing her husband to death, a slow, painful death. And to lose a husband in the ancient world was the equivalent for a woman losing her complete identity. And with no ability to process her experience of loss and suffering, with her understanding of God, she is embittered and she is angry at God. This is what we want to avoid. This is why we are in this series of messages. So that, so that as we go through this, wherever this might lead, we don't wind up where Job's wife is. Instead, we will aspire to be like Job, faithful in the midst of suffering. Now, we have benefit of knowing what Job is never permitted to know. Nowhere in the book 
Is he ever given insight into the calamitous series of events of his life and how they came about? But because we do have that insight, because we do know the whole story, we can make the following observations about the nature of God and the experience of suffering. First, this. God is not the cause of suffering. The first two chapters make clear that Job suffered at the hands of Satan, not God. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan attacked Job with marauders. Satan attacked his family with meteorological disasters. Satan afflicted his body. God did not. God did not steal, kill, or destroy. Satan did. Any suffering we experience is the result of a fallen and broken world, of sin and evil in this world. There is is clear evidence of this all the way from the earliest chapters of the Bible. The idyllic existence of Adam and Eve was wrecked, wrecked by their sin, and suffering was the result. Suffering is the direct result of sin in the world, and God is not the cause of it, full stop period. Next. In saying that Job teaches God is not the cause of suffering, we are not meaning to say that God hasn't willed the existence of suffering. And I'm not making a distinction without a difference here. I'm simply pointing out that the experience of suffering that Job endured wouldn't have happened had God not willed suffering in our world in general, or in Job's life in particular. Now, some are immediately pushing back against that and saying, well, he didn't will it, he allowed it. But that is a distinction without a difference. Remember, many times our theology is fine so long as no one asks us any questions about it. So let me ask a question of someone who is trying to find comfort in some some distinction between God willing and God allowing suffering. If God knows the future, so he, he knows the future, he sees what is coming and chooses to allow that to happen. And Orthodox Christianity affirms that God does indeed know the future. Can he change that future, or is he bound by it? Isn't a God bound by anything to lead us to conclude that God is not ultimate, that something else is? And if that's the case, the future, linear time, would be ultimate, and God would at best be able to only adapt himself to it or just accept it. But if God can change something about the future, which Orthodox Christianity affirms that he can, then then that means what? It means he willed it. And deciding to allow something to happen, he wills it. If Job shows us anything, it shows us that God isn't passive in Job's experience. He is active in it. He is making choices concerning it. And he chooses to allow this. He's not the cause of it, but he chooses to allow this to come into his life. Which leads to the next observation. God is sovereign over the experience and extent of suffering. Satan wasn't set free 
to do whatever he wanted to to Job. God set the terms. Satan didn't have permission to do whatever he wanted to do. He had to stay within the constraints that God had set for him. Many times, many times from our experience, it can feel like, like suffering is running unchecked. That, that it's just controlling everything and everything about the world is out of control because of that experience. I've certainly been there. From losing a father-in-law out of the blue when he was only 52 years old to watching our oldest and his wife struggle for three years with infertility, though we're now looking forward to a granddaughter in August. In, in those instances, I certainly felt pulled along and desperately sought a way to just fast forward it because I felt like it was completely out of control. But none of those experiences out as control as they may have felt to me, were outside of God's rule. The experience and extent of suffering takes place under God's supreme hand, which then leads us to the two biggest observations and the most comforting observations in these first two chapters of Job. Next, the experience of suffering serves God's purposes. Why does God let Satan loose on Job? It's hardly arbitrary, is it? His purpose is to demonstrate the sincerity of Job's righteousness and to disprove once and for all Satan's contention that men only serve God because he blesses them, which on one hand would indicate that mankind can't really and will never really love God, and on the other hand that God isn't actually worth loving on his own merits. Now, not to nerd out on you right now, but... My doctoral work focused on the wisdom books of the Bible, and Job is one of those. Proverbs is another. Uh, Ecclesiastes is another. There are some wisdom ideas found in some of the Psalms. And when you do a deep dive into these books, you will figure out pretty quickly they're not unique. And by that, I mean that there are similar books with similar themes among the Egyptians and the Babylonians of the time. And the theory that I played with in my dissertation was that you could figure out the key truth an author was making by comparing what he wrote in Scripture with its Egyptian or Babylonian counterpart. There's actually a book from Babylonian literature that's referred to by scholars as the Babylonian Job. Uh, the name of the book, it's actually a poem, is the Poem of the Righteous Sufferer. But in that book, the righteous man, who is Subshra Mashra Shakan, for those of you looking for baby names right now, concludes that, that the gods afflict for no reason, on capricious whims, that suffering in the human existence has no purpose at all. And Job teaches just the opposite, which leads us to the question, well, then what's the purpose? What's the purpose when suffering comes our way as fully devoted followers of Jesus? What's the purpose when suffering comes into our world? And with this we close. The experience of suffering allows us to glory in God's sufficiency. Both times in the face of unimaginable suffering, 
Job lands a haymaker to Satan without ever knowing he had done it. He cries out, my pain is not ultimate. God is ultimate. After his life is wrecked and after his family is wrecked, he says the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. After his body is attacked, he says, shall we receive good from God and not evil? Later in the book, in deepening pain, he will say, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. And he goes on later to say, I know my Redeemer lives. And with each thunderous affirmation of God's supremacy, Satan cowers away. And it's an opportunity that Job wouldn't have had. And it's a victory over Satan that wouldn't have been won had God not willed this crisis. Let's let's go back to the question I asked Julie at the funeral when the person speaking said the tragedy that caused the funeral was not God's will. If, if something isn't God's will, if he didn't mean for it to happen, what's my alternative? And any path you take to that answer ends up either with a weak God or a feckless, capricious God, and neither provides any comfort. But the alternative to accepting all things that happen to us as God's will is to know that every single joy and every single heartache Every single blessing and every single loss has a purpose in it. That God is giving his people so that they will learn what ultimate joy is. Every single trial that comes into our world is an opportunity for mankind to discover That God is ultimate. To cause us to revel in ultimate joy and rest in the sufficiency of God. And most of all, most of all, it allows me to know that in the middle of my trial, whatever it is, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's a marriage going down the tubes or a job loss or financial reversal, that whatever is happening to me, God is in the midst of it. We're scared. We've not suffered yet to the degree that many in our world are suffering. To, to our knowledge, right now, no one has been diagnosed with this virus in our church family. Some are starting to get some pushback with their jobs. But really suffering through it, we've not hit it yet. Maybe we won't. But we're scared we will. We're scared of what we know. We're terrified of what we don't know. But if Job is to be believed, we can be certain of two things. That this pandemic gives us as Jesus followers an opportunity to do something that will echo in the halls of eternity. And that we are not alone. Where is God in a pandemic? 
right here, active in our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, for me, these things are not just theology lessons. These are my anchors. Father, I am naturally inclined to worry and be anxious. But Father, you have given me in large part victory over those things in my life because of the settled conviction revealed in Scripture that you are Lord over everything. And so I preach this, Father, today. Felt compelled by you to bring this message so that people will know that their comfort is not in a quick end to this thing or in an endless search to find some positive news that we can latch on to. Our hope in this is you. Because if our hope in this is, is in you, then it, it really doesn't matter where it goes. Because we know we have you. We have all of you as followers of Jesus. We'll never be alone in this. And we have an opportunity in the midst of, of difficulty and trial to show you to be ultimate, to rejoice in your glory, to revel in your sufficiency. And I pray, God, that you can have the confidence in me and in our church family that you had in Job. Because you didn't guess what Job would do. You knew what he'd do. And I pray, Father, that I will be able to glory in you whatever comes my way. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.